Excited to jump into this final week of our current series we've been doing called Love Defined. You know, we walk through how does God define love versus how does the world define love. We've talked about loving our enemies. We've talked about how love sees the best in people. I just want to remind you of some scriptures here this morning before we dig, dig deeper in. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, let love be your highest goal, right? As Christians and as believers, love is at the very core of our faith in Jesus Christ. And then I want to review again just what God's word says about love. In 1 Corinthians 13, we've been reading this passage every week in this series. It's something we need to ingrain in our own lives. I was even just, man, this last week, I feel like there was something that had irritated me. And immediately the Holy Spirit convicted me and said, why are you being irritable? <laughs> you know, so uh, pastors are people. We're going we're gonna to work on all this stuff together. And I just think, Lord, how can we do this? How can we walk in love? So let's, uh, let's read this. Starting in verse 4, it says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful, and love endures through every circumstance. What an amazing definition of our God's love for us and the love that he asks us to pour back out towards him and towards his people and to walk in in our own lives. It's so great. So today's message is all about how we are called to love like Jesus. Woo! I mean, duh, right? That's probably where you're like, well, isn't that the point of the whole series? I think this statement is so much bolder and more powerful than it just reads at first glance when you think of the, oh yeah, that's a Sunday school phrase. We should just love like Jesus, right? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Bring back some, is that 90s? I don't know, I got saved in the early 2000s, so I'm asking you 90s kids, saved, out, saved a little earlier than me. But, um, you know, love like Jesus, it's a bold and powerful thing. You know, as Mark was sharing this morning, I was just thinking about his word and as we were in that next song, building my life upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking, you know, that word, this battle that we're facing, this, this fight that we're in where the enemy wants to prevail, but he cannot and he will not. Um, and, it, and it's an empowering thing. Um, not only is that this building, you know, that's not about the bricks, the, the, the beautiful yellow brick on the outside of the building. It's not about, you know, he's not going to prevail against this curtain and these chairs and, and that. It's the, it's the people. It's the group of the, the believers of Jesus Christ who have represented him here. And so when he talk, talks about it will not prevail against his church, he's talking about God's people who don't just come here on Sundays, but who go out and represent him as that light, like that city on a hill every day of every week and walk out who God is in their lives. And I was just thinking about that light example too. The battle isn't just squashing darkness, it's shining the light. So many times when we go see something in the darkness and we try to squash it, you can start to play whack-a-mole a little bit because, oh, there's an enemy over there. There's an evil spirit over there. There's a demonic presence over here. There's a sinful nature in my life over here and in that person's life over there. You can play whack-a-mole a little bit with all the things that are off. But suddenly, if you change from that hammer to now a lantern or a light or a torch or whatever that looks like, and that's the light of Jesus that shines forth, suddenly you can start to multiply the power of of defeating the enemy. And it's not your own power. It's God's flowing through you. And we can do so much more. And so I don't know, those are just some things that I was sensing out of what he was speaking. And every, anytime 
uh, God speaking and moving and working in our lives, we take that before him and ask. But when I think about this component, love like Jesus, it's a very bold thing because this is, this is how we represent him in the world and fight so many of our battles. You know, we don't just take up a sword like Peter tried to do to defend Jesus. Sometimes we step out and we love people like Jesus did. And it's a very, very powerful thing. It's a very, very bold move to love like Jesus did. It's a very, very uh, strong component of our faith that we don't have to rely on our own strength for, but we do need to draw close to him and allow him to work in us for that to be accomplished, right? Love like Jesus. First John chapter two, verse six says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did, right? Again, that's another bold statement. Wow, can I be like Jesus? Can I do what he did, live like he did, love like he did? That's a very powerful thing. Now, we're all gonna mess up on a lot in our lives. And I, I'm going to, um, I have. I know, I know you guys have. No, I'm saying that, we're just humans. This, this is how life works. But I think that this has to be our goal. This has to be the standard we set so that we're always lifting our eyes. We're always seeing the goodness of God and we're always chasing after who he is and how we can love like him, how we can be like him, how we can see people the way that he sees his people so that love can come from that place, right? Unfortunately, our world today, when we're talking about loving people like Jesus did, Christians can get a really bad reputation of this love of God. Sometimes, sometimes the world doesn't see it from, from certain believers, and I can't stereotype everybody, right? So I'm, when, I, when I'm talking today, if I talk about areas where Christians or the church has had some weaknesses, I'm not, gonna, I'm not thinking of individuals in here. I'm, just, I'm thinking of what I, what I know that I've heard from, from family or friends or people in this world who have, who have spoken about Christianity or the church or whatever. I think there's a reputation that when it comes to dealing with sins, especially some of those sins that we even, we, we've even learned about or talked about that feel like the really bad ones, right? The, the Christian world can sometimes not be seen as loving like Jesus as much as they can be finger pointing or, or witch hunting a little bit, so to speak. And so I wanna dig today into this concept of loving like Jesus and explore how Jesus responded to people, how Jesus responded in the midst of sin, how Jesus loved people well and, and approached this concept of love despite what's going on in the world. Right? And how do we do this like God? How do we become like him, love like him, and treat people like he did? And I think to start, we have to remember what God's love has done for every single one of us. That's God's love has accepted us even in the midst of our own sin. Every single one of us has sinned, will sin. You know, we, we have the opportunities Clearly all around, there's, you know, I'm sure you guys don't have to think back very far in history, in your own life right now, to think of temptations you've faced that the enemy would love for you to open a door to sin with, right? Where there's a battle in this world, on this earth, this, this, we're not in perfection yet, we're not in the eternal heaven with God where everything's perfect yet, right? And so we have sin, and to step into this relationship with, with Jesus, it took him dying on the cross to pay the price for those sins, but he did it out of love for us while sin was still unpaid for. Before he even did that, he loved and he came down and he paid that price. And it wasn't just for those that were physically alive to over 2,000 years ago that did the hammering of the nails and placed the crown on his head, of thorns on his head. It was for all humankind. 
was for all of us, right? So let's think about what Jesus did. Let's think about his actions and his attitude, right? With how does he accept us? Because Romans 5, 8 says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That's how we, we dig into the word and God's affirming of that love from that perspective. And I think Jesus really lived this out. Jesus is our best example of how to do this. And it's great because we're talking about loving like Jesus. He is God incarnate on this earth. Jesus hung out with prostitutes. He defended adulterers and spent time with sinners. Think about Judas. Jesus knew in advance that Judas was going to betray him. And after Judas betrays him, he even allows him to come up and give him a kiss which is the, the, the symbolism that, that that moment that Judas kisses him is what sends the officers in to arrest him, right? They, that's the sign of how do we know who he is, right? Jesus could have said, I'm getting rid of this guy. You know, like uh, he's out of here. Um, he, he loves him. He, he, he spends time with him. He lets him be in his, in his group of, grouping of people. And there's love there. And back in Jesus' day, tax collectors were not looked too highly upon. I was thinking about that. I'm like, is that how it is nowadays? I don't know. Maybe they just didn't have as good of tax returns back then. I don't know. They, they were always just giving out and they never got anything back. I'm sure everybody in here has different tax experiences. But, you know, one of Jesus's, another one of his disciples was Matthew, who was named Levi before. He was a tax collector before he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. So he came out of this occupation that is looked so down upon um, by, by the people around him. And now he's one of Jesus's followers. And I want you to listen to this. Uh, Matthew actually gets to write one of the gospels, one of the perspectives of the life and ministry of Jesus on this earth. And so in chapter nine, verse 10, it says this, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Right? Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the most perfect, sinless person who is holy and righteous gets invited to a home with those people, those disreputable sinners, those tax collectors. How could he go there and do that? I'm, you, people were thinking those things at that time. He did this so often that the religious leaders even looked down upon him. Let's jump ahead a couple chapters to 11 here. Verse 19 in the book of Matthew, it says, the son of man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners, right? This is Jesus highlighting, like he's saying, look, this is what's being said. This is the reputation that certain religious leaders were calling out about him. man this guy's messed up. Did, did, does anybody see who he's spending time with? Who he's associating himself with here? I think the cool part, when you think about the nature of God and who he is, in that moment, he wasn't afraid to be seen as guilty by association. Now, you could take that, interpret that in different ways, so I want to be careful that how, how we hear that. Um, Jesus wasn't afraid to represent the Father by having relationship with those that the world were pointing their fingers at and calling sinners. We'll dig in a little bit deeper here about you know, how that looked, but he wasn't afraid to be seen with those that the world was looking at as outcasts, right? I think as a lot of Christians, myself included over my life, there's, there's fears that, that can be faced 
when we're trying to find our own place in relationship with God and what it looks like. And how do I, how do I discern what all his word means about sins in my own life, let alone now how do I learn what this means for when I'm spending time with this person or that person? And man, if I do that, what, what does this look like? Or, or if, if I'm around this person, will I get sucked into something myself? And I think those are valid things to think about. But there's those phrases that come to mind. What if I'm seen with certain people or seen at certain places what will people think of me? And will they think that I'm endorsing things that I shouldn't be, right? So it's important to read, read God's word. It's important to be able to, to study and learn, God, how, how do I walk out in these relationships? How do I represent you well in all of this? But um, again, coming back to just some stereotypes of Christianity that can be out there in our world. There's, there's stereotypes about even how we as believers, the American Christianity, that disreputable sinners get looked down on. We've talked about this in the past few weeks as well. There's fears involved with uh, being in, coming to church for those that maybe haven't, stepping foot in a church because maybe they've tried and, and haven't felt loved, haven't, haven't felt like someone approached them with the love of Jesus. Or, or man, I, I just, someone just gets saved and now what does it look like to go be around all these people? Do I have to have my whole life together, right? There's some fear on that side. And so isn't it interesting that there's fear from non-believers, fear from believers, fear all around, Maybe it's yeah, no coincidence, Matt, you're talking about a dream that instilled a little bit of fear and we're talking about some fears today. Thanks for sharing that with our team this morning. You know, the Lord doesn't lead us through fear, now fear of God and awe of who he is, but that's different than I'm, I'm scared of certain things, right? But there's fears out there. Listen, listen to this. I, I, I just, I'm gonna read a list of things that, characteristics, uh, actions that people participated in, things that I, I think probably historically over time, the church has done well at in some ways, but I would also say you can probably imagine the church has not done well at in loving people. Listen to this, the, the types of people that can exist in this world and maybe the church hasn't always done a great job globally in this. Loving drug dealers, pimps and prostitutes, criminals, felons, drunkards, adulterers, lustful straight people or lustful gay people, pedophiles, shady business people. You could create a whole other list. I'm just thinking as I, as I read those terms, I'm imagining, man, what is, the, what is the makeup of the body of Christ and what experiences have, have believers had and how has the church, and I'm not saying cross, I'm saying the big C church, how, is, how has the bride of Christ that we've been talking about loved these people? Because I, I also know there's ways the body of Christ has not been loving to people that, that fall into these categories, right? And again, this isn't a finger point anyone here. I'm just saying historically, these are, there's, there's been love and there's been lack of love. So how do we grow in this? How do we learn in this? How do we do this for ourselves personally and, God's, and say, God, how can I love everyone like you love them? And then as we join our love for people together, how can the church begin to build a reputation in the community for being loving, right? Maybe that's, uh, stems from Crosspoint, but how, other churches as well. How can the body of Christ create a movement of love in a world where there is so much sin? And I, honestly, I really hope that our church continues to keep open doors for anyone that can identify with those sins right there. Some of you may be sitting in this room going, oh man, that's me. He just read something about me. Welcome. God loves you. The Lord loves you, right? That's who we are as the body of Christ. 
We're a representation of God and his love. I was thinking if Jesus continues to roll into town, if he comes into Milton, comes to Whitewater, comes to Jefferson, right? Where are we going to see him? I'm, I'm guessing he's going to spend time with some disreputable sinners. And if he walks in the doors of the church and he's spending time with us in here, disreputable sinners included, but, you know, also just those of us who are sitting here singing, worshiping, and, you know, probably, probably in a lot of ways can look like we've got it all together sometimes on Sunday mornings. You know, is he going to continue to see an extension of his love here? Will he see areas of, of hypocrisy? Will he see areas of religious rituals that, that have maybe gone a little too far? I don't know. But I want those, these questions to swirl a bit in our minds and in our hearts and say, God, help me grow. Help me love. Help me know how to be more like you, see people more like you do, love people more like you do every step of the way. God, I, I just want to do this your way. I want you to get the glory in all of this, right? There was a church in, in history here that struggled a lot with this, with this concept of love. They were doing really great things for God, but it's actually the church of Ephesus, right? The, there's a letter Paul writes to the church of, in Ephesus called the letter to the Ephesians. But actually in the book of Revelation, Jesus, through the apostle John, gives a message that says, hey, go take this message to that church in Ephesus. I got something to say to them. I need them, I need them to grow. I need them to learn. And so listen to what Jesus said in Revelation chapter two here. It says, starting in verse one, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not, and you have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting Those are some incredible things right there, right? This is great stuff. These people in the church of Ephesus were standing for what's right and doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. We need to commend that. We need to be thankful for believers who can live like that. But it's not the whole message here, he says in the letter. He continues, he says, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first, right? And I'm gonna pause there for a moment because even that statement, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, it's not he's saying you've never loved me or other people and you just are bad at this. He's saying, you used to be good at this. You've done this. You loved me well and you've loved other people well at first, right? When you knew me, you got saved, all of this. He's calling them back to something that they, that they understand, right? He's pointing that out a little bit. He says, look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first, If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches, right? The influence, the the positioning this church had within the world to represent God. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. So again, God's trying to call out an opportunity to say, here, look, I don't want you to think that you've been getting this all wrong. You've been doing some great things. And even the thing that I need to bring to your attention that I want to bring correction into, you've done it well before. I just need to remind you of why you're here. I need you to, I need you to think back to what drew you to me in the first place is what Jesus is talking about. What, what brought you into the faith of, of God? What, what, what intrigued you to receive that invitation from God to be a part of his kingdom? What drew you to be a part of the body of Christ in your local church? What, what, is, what is it you're here for? What do you want? What do you want from God? Right? What, is, what was that initial inspiration that stirred up in your heart when God first called you and said, I love you? 
I want you. Let's do this together. Jesus is sending that message to that church. And I don't want to miss that message today in my life at Cross Point in the church in America, the Christian church that represents Jesus Christ. I don't want to, I don't want to miss the opportunities that we have to remember our first love, to not lose our first love in Jesus and to learn to love people like he did. So we can live out those two commandments we've talked about the last couple weeks, to love the Lord and to love people. They are equally important, Jesus said. So how can we do that well? Jesus calls out this church for their lack of love because loving God and people cannot be absent from the equation. So God's love accepts us even in the midst of our sin. However, God's love does not affirm our sin. And that's the part where these, both, and both of these concepts have to play together here. Because if I'm honest, I've heard a lot of, lot of, of stories and things about how, well, man, God, God's love accepts everybody. And so this has to go one way. Or God's love, God's love does not affirm sin. So we need to really stand strong on that. I think you could go too far to, to an opposite spectrum of each of these values. And we need to learn to come back to the part in between these two things that, where Jesus lands, where God's love accepts and loves while not affirming sinful things that have been done by the people that he loves so well. Being loving doesn't mean we flip towards endorsing sin. See, I just think about the concept of sin. Sin is not about, oh, you, this is a set of rules that someone has broken, and so we have, to, we have to police the law of these things. The nature of sin is that it's something that God is trying to help us become aware of because it's something that can poison our soul. It's something that can lure us away from our God-given created identity, our purpose, uh, the, the love of God itself, right? Sin tries to get us to operate outside of the way God des- designed us. And so sin can affect us spiritually and emotionally and relationally and physically. There's a, so many consequences and effects of sin, right? God, God's not trying to just get us to become believers where we just go read something and say, well, that's a sin, so I shouldn't do that. And then when someone in the world who engages in that sin asks you, why not? Well, because God said so. There's a, there's a bunch of rules in this Bible thing over here I haven't learned about. You know, I've learned to think, well, if God is highlighting something, I need to ask him why. What's the point of that, right? I used to be a big partier in college before getting saved, and I struggled with drinking alcohol. Not because I had an addiction to the substance, I had an addiction to the social life, to, to being affirmed and loved by people. And if that's what they did, then I needed to get in to do what they did. And as I was a Christian believer, my wife and I were living in an apartment in Whitewater, our first year of marriage. And I remember just one day in this apartment building, there's these picnic tables out front and I walk up and maybe I've shared this story before. I don't care. It goes right along with what we're saying, but I walk up and there's these people sitting out there with a case of beer at a table and, I, and they didn't say anything to me, but I walked by and I thought, you know, if I've been living in this community for a while, what if somebody asks me to join them? Hey, you want to have a drink? Hey, have some more, have some more. You're like, what, what would be my conversation point? What would I tell them? Would I join them or not? And if I, if I don't get drunk with them, do I just say, well, the Bible says not to? Is that, and, and if I say that, how much weight's that going to carry in their lives? What's that going to mean to them? But I could look back at my own past and see the damage that the abuse of that substance in my life had caused before I got saved. And I can look at the scriptures and how God says, don't be controlled by this substance. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill you and lead you. 
I realized God has a purpose for things. And that, that was just one example that the Lord has stuck within me. And maybe I'll share that story again. Not next week. Don't worry, I'll, I'll make it a while. But it's just things that God does in your life, you know, where they stick with you. And you, you, you realize that there's meaning to the scriptures. There's purpose behind these things that we do or don't do, right? So when you think about the sin, I think, I think it's tempting to think about when, when maybe, maybe something's in front of your eyes or, or in, you have a decision to make in your life and there's an opportunity to sin. You might think, well, this won't hurt me or it won't hurt others. Because maybe you're thinking about, oh, a physical thing or a, or a, a relational thing where if someone just doesn't know and we hid that, well, then maybe it won't affect everybody. But let me tell you this, before, before I mean, we, we could spend days just going through every single, every single sin and trying to figure it out. Let me start here. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And even in the moment when we're struggling to figure out what, how the sin thing and godliness all tie together. God has a reason for the things that he talks about in his word. And the reason for the things he has stem from his love for you and the protection that he wants to hold over you. He wants to keep you from the darkness. He wants to keep a foothold of the enemy out of your life. God has purposes for things. And those, thing, those, those reasons will play out in the practical. So we have to seek God and, and wise counsel from others to help us understand that. But God has purpose in all this. I want to read a story here from John chapter 8. Story about the adulterous woman. Let me read this to you because I think it highlights a bit of what we're talking about in the heart of Jesus. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple and a crowd soon gathered as he sat down and taught them and, and he sat down and taught them. So much like here we are right now, right? Jesus comes, he goes to their religious establishment to go teach and hang out with the crowd. Um, it says, as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. <laughs> Talk about public humiliation a little bit, right? That's a, that's a bold move on those religious leaders' part. I mean, those religious leaders, I mean, if they're considered religious leaders, and we're at the temple, those are leaders from that place, bringing up someone caught in sin and standing them in front of the crowd. And they said, teacher... This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? That was an interesting question because they had rules and laws written for this. They just stated what the law says. They know what they're supposed to do according to this, this law, right? The, the, the law that Moses had written, right? If you, the, you look at the first five books of Scripture, there's a lot of laws written in there. Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible, so why do they ask Jesus? Why are they, why are they coming to him? If, if they're already authorities, they're leaders, and they've got their rules, and they've got these things they follow. Continues, says they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right. So he's like, okay, I hear your laws. I hear your rules. <laughs> but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. If your law says to stone someone who's been in sin, well, then let's look here at everybody in the room and let's ask who has never sinned and let's let that person be the one that starts the process of fulfilling what your law says is supposed to be the consequence here, right? Then he stooped down and wrote again in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. People weren't gone. They just stepped back and removed themselves from this woman's presence because they realized 
They were convicted by what Jesus had said. Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. An incredible moment, right? Jesus acknowledged that she had sinned. He wouldn't have said that last statement if he didn't. Go and sin no more. He wasn't, he wasn't releasing her from the acknowledgement of what she did wasn't, was or wasn't sin. He acknowledges the fact that she had been walking in something sinful. But he comes with forgiveness and love and says, I, I'm, I'm with you and I'm for you. So let's do this together. Let's go a different direction here together. They, she now gets to walk in relationship with her Lord and Savior from that moment on not based on the, uh, an act of hatred that was coming her way through those that were also sinners. Clearly, their actions of removing themselves from that moment acknowledge, man, I've messed up too. And Jesus didn't love her becoming, by becoming pro-adultery, right? He loved her by accepting her in the midst of sin, even though he wasn't affirming the sin itself. Now, even when I say that, I can, I can say this, that much of the world still won't care about that approach, because there are those who don't want you to say that something they've done is sin, or they'll still feel judged. They're still working out how to be able to hear this kind of love, this kind of message, right? They, they don't want to be told they've sinned, or they don't even want to, they, maybe they know it's sin, and they just don't want to be told that. They want to go and live the way they want to live, right? So living in the way where we love people like Jesus did won't make everything work when we're trying to love people well and point them to Jesus, but it's the, it's the approach that God is asking us to take. It's important that we love well no matter what. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, Love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. This is a great verse. However, we need to be careful because love doesn't throw the truth back in people's faces either. Love accepts someone in their sin, yet doesn't have to affirm the sin. We need the truth to win out, but how do we do truth in love? How do we combine those things together, become the body of Christ who's able to love everyone like Jesus did and then represent him in a way where we can point everyone to him, where in that relationship with him, he can guide them, he can convict them, he can love them, he can pour that out and he can walk them through the path that he has in store for them in their life. And so today, um, we're gonna end with an example here that I wanna get real, I wanna get practical um, and it's, it's a controversial subject, but I wanna, I wanna look at a real-life example of how we can love someone well, and the reason why I wanna do something controversial is because this is a really hard thing to do in our world, and we need, to, we need to talk about the hard things here. We need to learn the hard things here. So let's talk about how we can love someone who is gay, all right? I told you that love like Jesus is a bold topic, so we're gonna go there, we're gonna do this, but how do we love someone who's gay in our world, in our culture, in our society, even in our church? How do we do that? God, show us. So getting practical. How do we love like Jesus and do this? First, we need to listen because love is willing to listen to others, to listen to anyone because everyone is created by God. He loves them. They have a life story and he doesn't want their story to end with today, he, including me. He wants our story to continue down a path that he wants to help write. He wants to lead them into the story that he, he has created for them, right? God tells us as followers of Jesus Christ in Colossians 3.12, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Can we use those 
characteristics to come and be willing to listen to anyone and everyone out of the love of Jesus Christ and hear, what, hear what's going on in their life, right? And as we listen, the next practical thing is, can we do that while also being humble? When we listen, we have to maintain an attitude of genuine humility. I'm not perfect. None of us can be perfect ourselves. We all make mistakes. And even as we try to listen and love someone, we'll make mistakes even doing that in relationship with somebody. It's important for us to maintain the humility of being able to say, I'm sorry if we've been insensitive to someone. Humble people become safe people, safe people to talk to. Humility opens an avenue where someone knows, okay, I can talk to them. They're going to be willing to listen. I want you to listen to this statistic from the NavPress website based on a study conducted by Andrew Marin, who's a faith-based professor at University of St. Andrews. Statistic is this, 86% of LGBT people were raised in a faith tradition. So I'll just throw some questions out with that statistic. How's the body of Christ doing at helping people with their search for godly sexual identity? Can the church become a safe place for people to seek the Lord and talk about what they're going through? Can the church lead people to Jesus and to live with God in a way where he can lead their lives and be their Lord and Savior and do that? Another practical thing, so we can listen, be humble, but also we gotta, be, we gotta avoid hypocr- hypocrisy within ourselves, whether as individuals or as a body here, right? Um, hypocrisy can happen when we emphasize one area of sin over another and we make this one a really big deal, but we're not paying attention. I think that's what Jesus was talking about with those leaders around the adulterous woman. They were highlighting her sin of adultery, but they were neglecting to acknowledge all these other areas of sin and that Jesus, Jesus kind of backed them down from that, right? You gotta be careful of that. We can vilify sins maybe we're, we're less comfortable with or we're, we think we're least likely to commit ourselves. We gotta be careful. Another practical thing that we need to be careful with is making assumptions. We can't, we, can't, we can't build assumptions about someone just because we might learn about an area that they're struggling with that, that can lead to sin, right? If someone in the church were to come to a leader and tell them, I need some wisdom. I'm attracted to someone of my same sex. What do I do about that? What does God's word say? It would be very, very unloving for a false narrative to get created about that person that, oh, because they're facing a temptation, all they want to do is this or that, or all, all their life is, all that's going to happen in their life is going to go down this road, right? Um, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of narratives that can get played out with that. I think, you know, even the question, is same-sex attraction a sin? Huh? Is if you're married in here and you're attracted to someone of the opposite sex, is there sin, right? There's, there's things that might happen in a moment where you're led to have a thought but I would say this, being attracted to someone has not yet led to sin unless that thought becomes lustful and that lust or that thought becomes, you know, something lustful that now leads to sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, which also means that, that it can become sinful when there's gay marriage because God has designed that between man and woman. And there's tons of scripture we can look at for that. And again, I'm not highlighting these things to say, let's go point everyone out who's failing at that because we could point a lot of fingers in here of things we've been failing at. But what I'm, I'm talking about here is that assumptions can lead to something. So because someone has a temptation, we need to be careful with us making assumptions that that temptation is going, is going to lead them down an area that they might not have even been led down yet. How do we interact with someone, meet them where they're at and bring that love, right? Another practical thing, 
must do. So watch out for incorrect language. You know, uh, my, my wife has helped me with this a lot in our adoption process because we adopted, uh, we've, we've learned in the process of adoption, it can be really painful for a birth mother or an adoptive family to hear the phrase, giving up a child in adoption. That's hard. You know, there's more, uh, you know, terms that are, that are more helpful to somebody. I'm placing a child into the process of adoption. You know, and I'm not, this isn't even about right or wrong. This is saying, how can I approach someone where they're at and what they're hurting in and say things that are more healthy? And so when we're talking about someone who is gay, we need to avoid phrases such as gay lifestyle, practicing homosexuality, or even the phrase gay agenda. Let me, let me give a couple examples here, right? You know, we don't really talk about those people with a heterosexual lifestyle. It's not a really common language. And so, you know, again, certain terms can now create boundaries that make it harder to bridge the gap, to have conversations where we can listen in humility, right? Um, you know, it'd be kind of weird if I, at church is over and I'm walking out and someone's like, wow, that was a, that was a strong word. And, um, you know, our, our, apparently our pastor practices heterosexuality, you know, practice, you know, that's a, it's a weird phrase to say. These are weird things to talk about that get categorized into this, this one area that can lead into sin for somebody. And so again, if we create a language that only highlights that, it really helps hurt. It, it's hard for someone to be seen. It's hard for them to see that there's not a barrier there. It creates these walls that aren't careful. And I think the word agenda, we have to be careful with because the word agenda insinuates a plan or a mission to accomplish something. And we can all have agendas in certain areas of our life, but we cannot assume that everyone who has, is gay has an agenda to try and um, tell everyone else that they should be gay or, or that they're trying to persuade someone of something. They might just be literally in the midst of figuring something out, struggling with that, and they'd be open to talking with somebody. How do we be careful not to create uh, those unspoken barriers that's, or, you know, off the language that we use? How do we make sure that we can be those safe places for people to come and share what's going on in their life. Finally, and most importantly, I think we need to remember practically as believers in Jesus Christ that we need to stay more focused on the gospel than letting sexuality itself become the main thing that we stay focused on, right? We need to stay focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus offers all of us an amazing invitation. His invitation is forgiveness of sin. His invitation is a life in relationship with God to be with him in eternity someday and to be part of his kingdom now here on earth as it is in heaven, right? To focus on the gospel more than anything else. That has to be what we do here. Listen to Jesus' response to religious leaders who complained about him in Matthew chapter nine, verse 11 through 13. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? You know, the, the Pharisees are looking at who Jesus is hanging out with and they're making judgments and they're now making judgments not only of Jesus, but it, it highlights their judgments of these, these other people that he's spending time with. When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. And then he added, go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Right, he's highlighting relationship, not religion here. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus is coming to have relationship with his people. And his people are not those that have touted themselves to avoid everything because that's impossible. 
He's not, tout, he's not coming to say, hey, let me come and stoke, stoke the egos of those who feel great because they've checked all these Christian boxes. He's saying, I'm, I'm coming to meet with you, my people. No matter what sh- what, what's gone on in your life, no matter what you faced, I love you. I want to know you and I want to walk forward into all I have in store for you in this life with you in relationship. I accept you. I might not affirm some things, but I, I, I'm, I'm meeting you where you're at and I love you regardless of what's gone on. Let's do this together. Let's move forward in this because the goal of the gospel is it's really, we, we don't try to get saved and then learn what the Bible says so we can all become managers of sin for each other. The goal of the gospel is not sin management. And I think that's, that's a hard approach to take anyway because honestly, as a human being, I can't convince someone enough to walk away from their sin. I can make a great case and I can point out a lot of great verses in scripture and I can, I can give them the why that I've discovered for myself. But really the Holy Spirit is the only one that can draw someone into the fullness of the conviction of their life. The conviction of, wow, God loves me. I need that love. Man, I'm struggling. I've been trying to do this on my own and I need him. Lord, I need you. Right? We can love people really well and point them to Jesus and it's through that love that they found from him that now we can let the Lord walk with them in relationship to find their God-given identity and purpose as his children. It doesn't mean we don't play a part. God may use us in the relationship with that person to speak into their life, but we're not their ultimate authority. He is. So as we walk in relationship with people and we find help in our sin from God and from others, and they do so with him and with us, we ask God to lead that. We ask God to convict us, to convict them, but all the while to do this in love, accepting, not affirming, but love nonetheless all the way through. Can we love like Jesus? Because we are to be kind and compassionate and see the best in people. I want to read one final verse here this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14 through 15. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Man. Real love defined by our God, by his word, sees every person as God's creation and loves them like Jesus would. Love accepts people without getting drawn on the other end of the spectrum, either of being affirming of sin. No matter what, we have to stay focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ every step of the way. God, teach me, Lord. Remind me first of the log in my own eye before before I point out any speck in anyone else's. God, help me know your love for my own life. Help me know your love for me. Jesus, I need you. And help me with your love filling up my heart, with your spirit filling me to the full. Help me see people like you do. Help me love people like you do. Help me represent you well, God so that I can point them into relationship with you. Help me know, God, when you've given an open door for me to speak truth into that person's life. And God, please really help me know how to speak that truth in love. Because God, that person I'm talking to, that disreputable sinner, 
They're made in the image of God. And God, when I'm that disreputable sinner, help people to see me in your image and love me. Love me so well that they point me back to you where I can find truth and I can find healing and I can find freedom and I can walk all, find, my, find myself an opportunity to walk with you on the path you've set before me, to be who you've called me to be in every way. I want to pray this morning, Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for every person in this room. No matter what sin we've walked in in our own lives, no matter what temptations we're facing even this morning, God, there's, there's those who have faced temptation before even coming to church. And I pray, God, that you would meet them right now and say, I love you. Are those going to be face temptation as they hide out of here today and go home? Help them remember, God, that your words say, I love you. Help us to find your love and to now meet others where they're at, God. And let's continue to explore your word together. Let's continue to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us, to know how we can go and sin no more, but how we can walk out that, that truth in your love, oh God. Help us be the body of Christ where it's safe for someone to come and talk about what they're struggling with, what they're dealing with, so we can help one another and we can find you together, God. We need you, Lord. This world needs you so desperately. How do we fight this battle against the gates of hell? By loving people and representing you in this world in the way that you so desire to be represented as lights, as that city on a hill. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.